0: So Jay, I've always wondered about Doombots.
1: Ah, me too, Miles. They have to be pretty advanced AI, right? I mean, are they self-aware? Do they have hopes? Do they have dreams?
0: Tawdry fantasies?
1: Well, I can't answer that, but I do know that at least some of the models are capable of having sex.
0: How do you know that?
1: Hawkeye slept with one. What? I'm Jay Editon.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 170 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome to the aftermath of that tiny cold open.
1: I can't believe you didn't know that.
0: Okay, so Hawkeye fucked a Doombot. I-I-explain?
1: Okay, so-so it wasn't a standard-issue Doombot. In, in his dubious defense, it was it was a Doombot that was posing effectively as the Scarlet Witch. And that doesn't actually make it better. Like it makes it less weird on Hawkeye's behalf. But unfortunately, it also means that Doom literally makes Scarlet Witch sex bots and that he did that while Scarlet Witch was holed up in his castle post M-Day, which is just exceptionally goddamn creepy.
0: I I don't feel good about that. You
1: shouldn't. No one should feel good about that. I guess Hawkeye might have very briefly, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Would it have been brief? I don't know. I mean, I go back and forth between maybe Hawkeye's a very thorough, sensitive lover and maybe he's totally self-centered. I don't know.
1: I I have absolutely no idea. I really, I I feel uncomfortable speculating about this.
0: I speculate about superheroes' sex lives a lot. I don't know what that says about me as a person.
1: I kind of appreciate the fact that most of those speculations are unresolvable because they'll never actually be effectively covered in the comics.
0: Well, uh, anyway, speaking of comics, we were planning to talk about some.
1: Yeah, I think we might have ruined it, though.
0: <laughs> it's all over. Let's just call the episode here. It'll be a couple minutes long, and we'll just quit in shame.
1: That actually sounds kind of great. I am very tired and pretty sick.
0: Oh, I'm sorry you're sick. I hope you feel better
1: it's decently possible that this episode is just going to be a lot of me coughing and then occasionally saying Dr. Doom.
0: <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't be an inaccurate description of these issues.
1: There's a lot going on. So we are, for context, going to be looking at Excalibur, and we're specifically going to be looking at the bridge era between Claremont and Davis. So this is this is all written by Scott Lobdell. We've got one three-part story and two essentially one-shots that all Fit together,
0: And this is actually the second kind of fill-in era, because after Claremont's first big uninterrupted run, there was a bunch of uh, fill-in stories. Um, most of them toward the end of that were also written by Scott Lobdell. Then there was Girl School from Heck, the three-part storyline about Kitty Pride at a boarding school that Claremont did, and now we're back to Lobdell fill-ins.
1: And I believe this is the first time we've seen him do any kind of ongoing story. I mean, he'd done a lot of one-shots in a row, but not really with any connections.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, and this one is, I don't know, it's its very strange, it's kind of fun, it's kind of not great. I mean, I feel like those qualities kind of typify the fill era of Excalibur in general.
1: I am, I think you liked these better than I did. I found them incredibly frustrating. I think the plots are pretty fun, but the actual writing, the dialogue is so glib and twee that it's intensely, intensely distracting, and it drags the whole thing down really, really hard.
0: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of one of those episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where the dialogue really gets away from the plot. I can see where you're coming from there.
1: It is, and I say this as someone who generally really likes Brian Michael Bendis. It's the same problem I have with him at his absolute worst.
0: I can see that, yeah. Like, those kind of, like, um, verbal stylings that can work really well when they're in concert with the rest of the creative aspects of the book, sometimes they can just dominate everything and then it's not, you know, as integrated as you would like.
1: Well, and when you have a writer who gets too enraptured with their own turns of phrase, those essentially overwrite any distinct voices the characters might have had, which is not a good
0: feature. And there's certainly a way to do that right. I mean, you know, there is such a thing as a Claremontism for a reason. Like, Chris Claremont did have his turns of phrase that he kept coming back to, but for whatever reason, they never seemed to detract. I find them charming.
1: That's because those were individual turns of phrase. They weren't the dialogue as a whole. Those turns of phrase kept on reappearing, but characters still had distinct voices. The fact that we saw stock phrases returning didn't delete that. I'm not talking about specific phrases so much as I am about general style. Well, that makes sense.
0: But regardless, we do, like you said, have a three-part story called The Prometheum Exchange uh, about Doctor Doom and Limbo and stuff. And then we have a couple of one-shots. So what do you say we give some context?
1: All right, now this is Excalibur. And Excalibur is back to pretty much its original lineup. They've got Captain Britain Megan Phoenix, Nightcrawler and Shadowcat uh, with tiny dragon Lockheed, and occasional assistance from Robot Head Widget
0: and intrepid scientist Alistair Stewart. From the Weird Happenings organization. They're all still based out of this occasionally interdimensional lighthouse in England where wacky hijinks ensue. And in fact, we have here some wacky hijinks.
1: This brings us to Excalibur number 37. This is the first issue of the Prometheum Exchange, a three-part story. And as I mentioned before, this is, this is a run that I'm not particularly fond of. And part of why I'm not fond of it is a little bit ironic because I really like the artwork in this, in this arc. And I think the story's got a ton of potential. And it just falls flat of those. Instead of being the sum of the parts, it's less than any individual.
0: It's interesting you describe your take that way because I found mine to be almost the reverse. Like, for me, the dialogue and the characterization does work relatively well. The humor does mostly hit home. But Mark Batcher's art, I don't know, it reminds me a lot of Chris Wozniak's art, who he's done a lot of other films as well, and it just doesn't do much for me personally. It seems sort of chunky and weird-faced.
1: It is chunky and weird-faced, but stylistically, I mean, I think the analogy I would make is probably to Steve Lealoha, who we saw a lot on New Mutants. It's, it's chunky and weird, but that's very much a mark of style. It, it doesn't look like Alan Davis' light. It looks like its own distinct thing. And it's its own distinct thing in a way that I think fits this particular story and the weirdness of Limbo very, very well.
0: Okay, I I can see where you're coming from. And yeah, listeners, as as you can tell, um, this stuff can be divisive. I mean, when you have like the big classic runs, most people seem to like them. With stuff like this, yeah, opinions vary.
1: One of the frustrating things about this, actually, is that I had remembered really liking this because I had just remembered the artwork.
0: Gotcha. I didn't
1: remember anything about the story except that it would involve Doctor Doom and the Soul Sword. And I went back and read it and I was like, damn it. Damn it, like, it's the, it's the opposite of so many of the other things that I, I remembered not really caring about or being frustrated with when I was younger. And then, then read and found that I appreciated more, and this, this, this I had the exact opposite experience with, and it was, it was puzzling and disappointing.
0: Well, let's talk about all of the things that happened and our various reactions to them.
1: All right, we begin with Excalibur gathered for breakfast. Megan is gradually getting the hang of person skills, and in this case, the two skills that she is in the process of mastering are making pancakes and written communication. She has managed to sort of blunder her way through some pancakes today. And yesterday, she successfully took down a phone message. Specifically, Dr. Doom called to say he'd be stopping by to see Shadowcat.
0: Okay, wait, what?
1: Dr. Doom called to say he would be stopping by to see Shadowcat. It's it's fairly self-explanatory, my friend.
0: And in fact, the rest of the team is pretty skeptical as well. They start making fun of her a little bit, which is kind of a dick move. Don't make fun of the lady who's being sincere, that's not nice. But talking about how, oh, you know, the next thing they know, they'll be just inviting the crazy gang in to live with them. Which, spoilers, yeah, that actually does happen pretty soon.
1: But Megan is vindicated because Doctor Doom, in fact, shows up and lets himself in. And let me just say, I so many dreams I have had... Nightmares, but yeah, basically any, any genre really begins with me eating breakfast in my home, in my underwear, and Doctor Doom showing up.
0: It's basically the standard start to any bit of fiction, or nonfiction for that matter.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is basically how every day of my life begins, kind of. Not really.
0: It's sort of like Hwet at the beginning of Beowulf. It's an invocation, if you will, for the day to follow.
1: This, this kind of just basically leaves me thinking that I really need to get a Doctor Doom costume so I can just be wearing it randomly when I answer the door or when people get home or when I'm running errands.
0: That seems reasonable.
1: Just add a little bit of Doom to everyone's day.
0: (laughs) As well you should. Well, why is Dr. Doom here?
1: Doom is here because he wants Kitty to draw the Soul Sword so that he can go to Limbo for a mining operation. Now, let's step back a little bit because we haven't seen or talked about the Soul Sword in a very long time. I think not since um, Inferno, which means technically not since recently because Inferno never actually ends, as we all well know. But um, let's pretend, and let's go back and recap a bit about the Soul Sword's origins in nature and where it is these days.
0: So Iliana first created-slash-acquired the Soul Sword when she was growing up in Limbo as the apprentice to first Velasco and then Storm. Her childhood was terrible, but at least she got a pretty sweet sword out of it, right? It's the focus totality of her, well, soul, basically.
1: Yeah, it's actually made from a shard of her soul, but it's also got a strong and direct... Connection to limbo to the magical realm that she wrested from blasco 's control and that was then the focus of inferno and when Ileana has died or she has been she has she has lost you know the the demonic taint that she had in limbo. Kitty has inherited the soul sword. Um, she suddenly becomes able to draw it, and when she does, she manifests the same soul armor that, that Iliana, that Magic had as well. So, when Iliana was de-aged during Inferno, during Inferno proper, Kitty once again inherited the soul sword, and she's had it since, although she hasn't exactly had it on her. Um, in Excalibur number 11, it appeared stuck in a rock, traditional Arthurian Excalibur style, outside. Super Team Excalibur's lighthouse where it has remained ever since
0: so in the old X-Men Sega Genesis game which I am still mad at because it expected you to think to physically reset the console at the end of the mojo level and I never thought that I would that that would be a thing you should do um but oh that's
1: brilliantly meta
0: oh it totally is but it was also brilliantly frustrating but there's a level set in Excalibur's lighthouse and the soul sword is out front and like the lighthouse is haunted and you can cheat your way through the level really easily by choosing Nightcrawler as your playable character and just teleporting through all the walls and avoiding the whole maze and it's pretty great and it made me so happy because I totally recognized it and nobody else did and I was a little Fuck, even as a child, about X-Men, apparently. (laughs) Aw. Well, yeah, Doom is here because Kitty has access to the Soul Sword. He wants to get into limbo, and Jay, you mentioned he was there for a mining operation. Maybe we should talk a little bit about that.
1: Alright, so what Doom is after is a substance called promethium. This is a fancy metal that he claims will give the entire world an infinite supply of clean, renewable energy. And he swears up and down that he is doing this for good, not for evil. Excalibur is understandably fairly suspicious.
0: Kitty, on the other hand, is staunchly on Doom's side, because her last experience with him was actually pretty positive. Right, back in the Fantastic Four vs. X-Men miniseries, she was in the process of gradually discorporating because of her injuries from the mutant massacre, and Dr. Doom, along with Reed Richards, managed to save her and keep her in kitty shape instead of like dust across the cosmos shape. She, I actually really love that when Doom shows up, she asks if she's due for her 2,000 mile checkup, which is a very kitty pride line for a situation like that.
1: She has traveled way more than 2,000 miles
0: since then. That's probably true. Way, way, way more. But yeah, Kitty trusts him. She knows that he has good or at least not pure evil in his heart. And when Rachel telepathically scans Doom's mind, she finds that, yeah, he's not evil, he's just a jerk. He's not wrong, he's just an asshole.
1: I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and skip ahead slightly uh, because Kitty and Doom head into Limbo and in fact, he does fairly quickly turn on her. As it turns out, his plan is to take all the Prometheum and while he is going to use it to grant the world, you know, clean, infinitely renewable energy, he's going to use the fact that he's got a monopoly on it to give Lotvaria control of the entire world. And this is also going to destroy Limbo. So, you know,
0: uncool. Oh, Dr. Doom, you incorrigible scamp.
1: What I love is that he then takes a moment He just pauses all of his plans to digress for a semantics lesson.
2: While others, for reasons of their own, chose to call this place Limbo, it is not. Time passes here. True Limbo is timeless. There exist natural predators here. In true Limbo, there are but transient and displaced souls. There is no sovereign of true limbo, but while I possess the soul sword, I am ruler of this mystic domain.
0: Sure you are, bro. Sure you are. Okay, so I guess this is the advantage of a character like Doctor Doom who crosses Marvel genres, like he does science fiction stuff and sorcery stuff and mutant stuff and basically whatever. This means he knows all of the different versions of all of the different things. I would actually really love to hear his take on the devil, because the Marvel Universe has like 20 of them.
1: Yeah, Dr. Doom explains the Marvel Universe would be pretty useful.
0: Also, he would talk in the third person the entire time and declaim, and it would be lovely.
1: Now, possibly, to everyone's relief, Excalibur shows up to save the day. Captain Britain and Doom clash, and Doom is knocked, at least temporarily, into orbit around Limbo.
0: Okay, so this is silly, especially as we see his orbit path go around the sphere that Limbo apparently is, and then he charges back in, complete with his own classical music theme. But at the same time, this is Excalibur, and it's important to remember that this book is goofy as shit sometimes.
1: Not only his own theme, but his own theme that he is singing.
0: Was he singing it? I thought he was playing from speakers in his I, I'm
1: pretty—no, sh- I'm pretty sure he was singing or humming it.
0: I, I feel good about that either way, honestly.
1: I'd really like to think that Dr. Doom sings his own theme music. That would, be, that would be a really good touch. And canon.
0: It's official. That's real.
1: Now, speaking of silly people, while all of this is going down in limbo, meanwhile in California, the West Coast Avengers are hanging out like the party kids they are when the Lady of the Lake emerges from their swimming pool.
0: So the West Coast Avengers were a team that were around in this era, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. Their current lineup is Iron Man, Tigra, Wonder Man, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver.
1: And they're pretty delightful. I think these are the characters whom Lobdell's dialogue fits with best, probably because they're the ones I'm less invested in.
0: (laughs) I mean, they were always a pretty tongue-in-cheek team, so yeah, I I would agree that Lobdell's dialogue works really well for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, Wonder Man. Now... The lady of the lake or the lady of the swimming pool at the moment is there to get their help because in order to enact his diabolical plan doom has opened five portals to limbo from all around britain now if he succeeds limbo is going to collapse in on itself when he reduces it to its component prometheum and removes that and britain is basically going to get ripped out of reality to fill the resultant vacuum which will be a problem for some fairly obvious reasons
0: I'd like to just take a step back for a sec and point out that the mythological Lady of the Lake from Arthurian legend just appeared in a swimming pool to let a bunch of goofy superheroes know that they needed to go into a hell dimension, but not that hell dimension to stop a guy in a metal suit who refers to himself in the third person all the time from turning it all into metal.
1: That actually sounds pretty tame by comic standards, Miles.
0: (laughs) It just fits Excalibur so well and it pleases me so much. Like, Jay, I know this story didn't do so much for you, but I just love so many of the concepts that are here.
1: Remember that time Hawkeye fucked a Doombot?
0: I I do. We we just talked about it. I'm I'm actually still sort of processing it. I I don't even know that I have an opinion yet.
1: Yeah, it's it's established as canon in the Avengers, uh, the Children's Crusade.
0: Oh, okay. It's a good story. Don't doesn't uh, Scarlet Witch's kids die or something like again?
1: No, they don't die. They they go and find her post M Day. Someone, another one of the young Adventures dies. That's that's when uh, Cassie Lang dies.
0: Oh, I liked her. That's unfortunate. Yeah, no, she's great. Well, damn. Well, depressing things that happen in other comic books aside, that's, uh, that brings us back to Limbo, where Doom has just summoned a bunch of demons. And this is interesting to me, because Doom is now the ruler of Limbo, because he has the soul sword, and apparently uh, uh, it's... Uh,
1: uh, No, no, no. He's is, he is the ruler of Otherworld. He would argue that this is not, in fact, Limbo.
0: I've been calling it Limbo for literally years, and God damn it, I'm still calling it Limbo. And if Dr. Doom disagrees, he can come to my house right now, just like he showed up at the Excalibur Lighthouse during breakfast.
1: Yeah, so these guys are pretty fun and they're what bugs me about them is they just kind of look inferno-y, they're not all that interesting. And I feel like you could do some really cool stuff with like twisted pseudo-superhero demons.
0: Well it's interesting though, because I mean if you're the, the ruler of otherworld, limbo, whatever then basically the demons can be whatever you want. And it seems surprising to me that Doom sees demons as like the heroes who have thwarted him. I would think this would be a sinister as a system kind of situation where basically all of the demons in Limbo are just other versions of Doctor Doom because he wants himself to be everywhere.
1: Disagree. Because the function of the demons in Limbo they're not they're they're his personal demons in the sense that they're the ones that serve him. And Doom doesn't see himself as a villain. Doom sees himself as better than all of these guys, but he doesn't see himself as fundamentally at odds with them. So the idea that they are they are the the sort of mindless underlings that could just serve his will is something I could see him finding incredibly satisfying.
0: You know, that actually is a compelling argument, and as much as I like the idea of a bunch of Brett Blevins, like, distorted, cartoony versions of Doctor Doom in Limbo, oh, man. I think you make a, a good point.
1: Possibly hanging out with Boom Boom, because right. Brett Blevins should always draw Boom Boom when he has the opportunity, because Boom Boom's facial expressions as drawn by Brett Blevins are the best things in comics.
0: Pretty much that. But what do you think about these designs? I mean, we have these demonic versions of heroes, and some are very similar to how they are in the main universe, and others are less so.
1: They're okay. I, I like it when uh, Iron Man comments that he he appreciates the attention to detail while Demon Namor kicks his ass while
0: yelling Imperius Rex. There is that, yeah. Um, What kind of weirds me out is that the demonic, invisible woman is just a demon lady literally wearing underwear. Like, was this presaging that weird, skimpy outfit she was going to get in the 90s after she got possessed by the evil lady? Was it Malice, or was it somebody like Malice? Well, It was Malice.
1: Uh, she's also pointedly only slightly translucent. She's not actually invisible.
0: I, I feel like that joke they could have done more with. But regardless, yeah, there's... A great big fight between demonic superheroes and Dr. Doom and, on the other side, Excalibur.
1: And the demons in Doom take Excalibur down fairly neatly. And the demons, you know, being demons, ask Doom if he'd like them to do what demons do and uh, torture the fallen heroes, to which Doom, to his credit, responds.
2: There is no honor in torture, demon. They were noble, albeit brief, adversaries. Kill them. Quickly.
1: But that's not going to happen because the Avengers are on, or at least the West Coast Avengers, are on their way to the rescue. They have made their way to the lighthouse, um, along with the Lady of the Lake or, and or swimming pool, where they are able to rescue a very surprised Alistair Stewart from an exploding limbo portal. They temporarily shut it, but all of the other portals are still open, and when Doom pulls out the Prometheum again, England is going to collapse.
0: So that's unfortunate. Uh, Of interest, by the way, in this scene, the Lady of the Lake does back Doom up. Apparently this is not actually Limbo. I guess it just didn't really stick because every time I've seen Limbo referred to after this story, everybody just calls it Limbo. Yeah, pretty much. Well, the Avengers head into limbo and manage to rescue Excalibur before the demons finish them off. But not before Captain Britain, having climbed out of the pit that he got literally hammered into into the ground, attacks Wonder Man because Captain Britain thinks that Wonder Man is just a bad demonic Superman knockoff because, you know, he's got like that W on his chest and he's big and burly and has hair that's kind of the same.
1: The thing is, I don't think knowing that Wonder Man was just a regular superhero would have stopped Captain Britain. He literally greets things by punching them.
0: And especially after he got humiliated in combat, I mean, you know, there's that one psychological study where a, you cause a rat suffering and then it just turns around and picks on a smaller rat to make itself feel better. It's kind of like that, except Captain Britain and presumably less of a deliberate psychological study.
1: Ah, ah, I like the idea of there having been, you know, myriad psychological studies in which it is determined that a Captain Britain, given specific stimuli, will, you know,
0: do whatever. <laughs> oh, man.
1: Captain Britain and the Wire Mother.
0: Now, that is a crossover I have certainly never thought about.
1: Now, they managed to work out their issues pretty quickly, and the West Coast Avengers and Excalibur team up. They decide that they are going to do what you do in a crossover like this. They're going to divide up into teams of two to head to each portal. So we've got Nightcrawler and the Scarlet Witch, Megan and Iron Man, Shadowcat and Tigra, Captain Britain and Wonder Man, and Phoenix and Quicksilver.
0: And we won't spend too much time on this, but it is really entertaining, certainly more so than the same thing was in Kings of Pain. Uh, Nightcrawler and the Scarlet Witch, they speak German together, and it's done pretty well, but apparently at one point, according to the internet, um, instead of saying, okay, by me, she responds to Nightcrawler's suggestion for how they handle things with, it tastes good, which I gotta say, that would actually be a pretty great idiom, and I think I'm gonna start using that myself in English.
1: Good luck with that, my friend.
0: I also do enjoy that in this scene, uh, Doctor Strange, the evil demonic version, invokes By the
2: hostess of the
0: mostest! And Evil Mr. Fantastic does his own version of Reed's dialogue with Your infernal bamfing has conflated me into a knot! That's something that I think Lobdell's dialogue really does do well here, is it takes characters we recognize and just twists them a little bit in a funny way. One of the other scenes I liked here is that when Shadowcat and Tigra go to fight their own demons and close their own portal, they find a bunch of demons just arguing about which one gets to be Wolverine, which kind of reminds me of playing X-Men at Recess back in the day, although personally, I was always Archangel or Iceman.
1: That says kind of a frightening lot about you, buddy.
0: (laughs) I suppose it does. If only I'd known about Longshot, or been more comfortable playing female characters, because Rogue is totally cool as well.
1: So these team-ups bug me because they don't make any sense. When you don't know what you're going off to face, don't you want to, you know, distribute your heavy hitters more evenly?
0: I mean, that would definitely be a sound strategy, but it kind of works out. I mean, that pairing ends up fighting against Demon Thing and Demon Thor, so it's just a great big bicep fest. You're totally right. I mean, this is pure narrative convenience. In a book like Excalibur, I'm a little more inclined to forgive that, but, you know, I think it's also a missed opportunity. I think you're right. Doom is better than this. Doom is better than basically everything. I mean, he'd be the first to tell you.
1: Unquestionably. Now, so what what is Doom up to while Excalibur and the West Coast Avengers are shutting down the portals?
0: So, Dr. Doom is confronting the demon who apparently betrayed him by saying that Excalibur was dead when, in fact, they really weren't. He says that not even the former ruler of Limbo, Sim, could oppose Doom. But he, this demon, as a non-native Limbo resident, totally can. So, that's mysterious, and we won't find out what's going on there for a minute, because the heroes are now arriving, at which point Doom does just what he said he was going to do, and plunges the soul sword into the tentacly heart of Limbo, which is going to destroy the whole damn thing and blow up England. End of issue. I'm sure everything is terrible, the series is over, and Marvel stopped publishing comics because the universe imploded. Just England. Okay, so obviously that didn't happen, and I gotta say, at the beginning of the next issue, I've seen a number of previously on and roll call intro pages before, but here, A, everybody calls Everybody by name, just in case this is somebody's first issue. And B, Rachel just barely stops Doom mid-stab from doing what he was definitely already in the process of doing at the end of the last issue. That cliffhanger got decliffhanged immediately.
1: I got the impression that he does actually stab part of the heart of Limbo, which by the way is is an actual like biological heart from the look of it.
0: But with like more tentacles than a human heart, say, I think.
1: Well, or blood vessels or something um and she's she's holding the heart together she's she's containing doom with her telekinesis but according to doom this isn't going to last for long because
2: her telekinetic powers are grounded in science while this realm is governed by magic
1: so her telekinetic powers that are a result of biology and being in some sort of gestalt with a cosmic force are based in science
0: I mean, hey, if you can't trust Victor Von Doom on the distinction between magic and science, both of which he is a master of, by the way, who can you trust? I believe him.
1: And that's how Kitty got into this whole mess to begin with, for the record.
0: Yeah, well, perhaps that is a good point. Well, the Demon Army continues its attack, but Megan notices that something is wrong with Doom's right-hand demon, you know, the one from before that was saying he uh, was not subject to Doom's authority.
1: In fact, this demon isn't a demon at all. Megan realizes that he's a man whose skeleton is laced with promethium, And while she doesn't realize this, I can tell you who that man is. He is Ben Grimm's old army buddy, Desmond Pitt. And Desmond Pitt discovered that there were Latverian spies infiltrating the military. And he decided he was going to go infiltrate Latveria. But he decided that he was just going to do it individually and secretly and not, like, tell anyone or get any kind of backup. So he eventually got caught. He did. He did pretty well. Um, he actually he was actually doing doing quite nicely. But his his wife died and he got sloppy, and Doom caught him and uh, he broke all of Pitt's bones and filled them with Prometheum and then reconfigured him into Darkoth the Demon, who was a figure from Latverian folklore, and used some kind of vibration bomb to erase his memory and convince him that he was in fact Darkoth the Demon. And then some shit went down with Mephisto and like Thor's secretary ended up. Adopting Pitt's kid, which was fine. But yeah, that's what's going on here. This is Darkoth. This is Desmond Pitt.
0: Did we just have a second cold open? I didn't know any of that. That's amazing.
1: It's a lot. And and this doesn't really get explored within the issue, which is a shame because I don't think anyone would have actually remembered him. He wasn't around very much beforehand.
0: Oh, man. Well, apparently Doom doesn't remember him either, as Desmond Pitt slash Darkoth says.
1: I'm the man whose life you destroyed. To which Doom responds,
2: You can't possibly expect me to remember every life I have destroyed.
1: For me, it was Tuesday.
2: Basically, okay, I always love this trope. When there's somebody
0: who's like, I've come to get my revenge on you, big villain. You were the most significant figure in my life. You destroyed everything. The villain's like, wait, who are you again? I mean... I've, like, destroyed a lot of people's lives. I don't want to make you feel less special, but I—what I, was your name? Well, just give me the first letter of it. I'm sure it's in here somewhere.
1: Well, he, he is eventually able to remember Desmond Pitt because Desmond describes the experiments that Doom conducted on him, and Doom's like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, you're, you're that guy. Long story short, although it's probably too late for that, Darkoth ends up claiming the soul sword from Doom. He also eats Sim.
0: Yeah, you know, Sim, like uh, Magic's old right-hand demon who used to run Limbo for a little bit, last seen in New Mutants number 73, Darkoth just chomps him.
1: It's cool. Now, Darkoth at this point is going to kill himself um, and basically thereby end Limbo, but Megan talks him
0: out of it and they kind of bond. And I really dig this part. This isn't a role we often see Megan in, but it's one that I think fits her very well. She knows what it's like to be perceived as a monster even by yourself. She knows what it's like to come out the other side of that and redefine yourself. And that aspect of her character, I love it when it comes out, when that wisdom and compassion has a chance to come out.
1: So Darkoth decides he's going to stick around as the sole resident and protector of Limbo, although he does assure Megan that he will come back when Megan needs him most, which is a total fucking lie.
0: Well, maybe she never needed him that much, but yeah, he's gonna be briefly mentioned in Warren Ellis' Soul Sword trilogy way later in Excalibur, and that's it. Like this seems like it's setting up such a big deal status quo change, and like, no, everybody just sort of forgets about it. Which is sad, because I mean, with a backstory like Darkoth, goddamn, that's that's a shame to lose.
1: Now our heroes head home triumphant. But all is not well because one member of Excalibur was gravely injured and limbo and now hovers at death's door. That is Lockheed the Dragon, and it is on Lockheed that the next
0: issue will focus. But first, I found something out from—it uh, was actually at rec.arts.comics.xbooks. A guy named Gary Hayton said that apparently Alan Davis, who is going to be taking over this book very shortly, had— specifically asked Scott Lobdell to kind of reset a lot of stuff to take a lot of dangling plot points and fix them up so that Davis could start a little bit fresher. He wanted Lobdell to fix Nightcrawler's teleportation, which, you know, did happen. We we saw that in this uh, story, although I don't think we mentioned it. He wanted to get rid of the warwolves we're coming up on that, to get rid of the soul sword outside of the lighthouse. Well, that's been taken care of, and to heal Kitty's phasing ability. Eh, that one didn't really happen. But even so, it's interesting that this table clearing we've been talking about in almost every book here, it was very specifically deliberate. But yeah, Jay, like you said, Lockheed's Injury is the focus of the next issue, and this issue is definitely different. Now, I liked this a ton, and you really, really didn't. One of the things I like about it is that most of the issue is in a terrible doggerel. It's an awful rhyming verse, as Lockheed sort of recaps the plot of the series. For me, that was so charming. So... I have some issues with this comic, but also in
1: general, um, <laughs> but I specifically have issues with writers who go, oh, I'm going to make this poetry, so I'll add some THs to words and, I'll, and some, some rhymes, kind of, and they don't pay any fucking attention to meter.
0: I mean, to me that it was kind of shitty poetry made it just seem self-aware and funny.
1: I would think it was self-aware and funny if I hadn't seen this happen so many times. It happens all the fucking time with Etrigan type stuff. It happened to some extent, although less so with a—I I say a recent, but it's probably like three or four years ago at this point, Captain Marvel issue. I want this to be done better because it's so easy. And in fact, to prove my point, I, I have written an entire review of Excalibur number 40 entirely in rhyme diverse because I am that
0: asshole. Well, then, by all means, Jay.
1: For the record, this took about two and a half minutes, so you got no excuse, Lobdell. <clears throat> you thought it be cute to write comics in verse, but the book that resulted was less bad than worse. Its cadence is sloppy, its slant rhymes abhorrent. It's not worth a purchase, nor even a torrent. I'll digress here to note that the art is quite nice, but reading this shit is an awful steep price. Dragons? Don't joke, sir. This book's for the birds, and its fairly fun plot can't make up for the words.
0: Harsh. And cleverly written. Well done. I'm I'm actually quite impressed. Again,
1: it's not that difficult.
0: Well, okay. Next time, Marvel, you want to do an issue like this, call Jay. Jay's totally got this.
1: I will fix your goddamn rhymes, Marvel. And DC. Because I am secretly a rhyming demon, but
0: not really because they actually don't pay any attention to Meter either, which really bugs me. Well, anyway, you mentioned that the art was quite nice, and I agree. This is art by someone named Dave Hoover, and it's this delightfully clean and expressive style, which for a silly story like this, I really dig. It reminds me a bit of Alan Davis, not like Hoover's trying to ape Davis, but it's got some of the same enjoyable qualities. The the hair's less swoopy, but, you know, nobody does hair as swoopy as Davis. Now... Lockheed, we actually haven't talked about Lockheed specifically in a while. He first appeared way back in Uncanny X-Men number 166. That was when Kitty Pride found him seemingly just a dragon-like animal as she was escaping from the Brood Saga. Well, I mean, as the Brood Saga was ending and she was escaping from the Brood. You know, Lockheed seemed gone at this point, just a little one-off creature, but he appeared again in number 168 to save Kitty from the Seedry Hunters. You know, those little, like, manta ray-looking dudes? I love their design so much.
1: He's generally Kitty's... Best bro, he's super protective of her. It's been implied once that he's he's got romantic feelings for her, which is a little bit uncomfortable. Kind of Comet the Super Horse style?
0: Ooh, Comet the Super Horse. That's a whole thing.
1: Comet the Nice Horse TM?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Oh, long story, listeners. The worst. But this is actually the first time we're going to delve into Lockheed's personality at all. And we start at an operating table as a bunch of doctors are working to save Lockheed's life from his limbo-slash-doom-inflicted injuries.
1: And Lockheed takes this opportunity to have a fun out-of-body adventure.
0: And narrates the whole thing in almost Seussian doggerel.
1: No, because Uh, Seuss does this shit right, which is another thing I have problems with because people try to write Dr. Seuss style and they write, again, they write verse that doesn't scan. And sometimes it it gets published and it makes me really angry every time because if you're trying to do Seuss, you should be so much tighter than that.
0: I just like that at one point he rhymes slash her with gatecrasher. But, you know, <laughs> opinions vary.
1: Look, I grew up on Tom Lair. I believe that if you're going to break stuff that badly, it should be deliberate and pointed and effective. Here, it's just a mess.
0: So Lockheed narrates and quickly lets us know what's going on. Jay, would you like to be Lockheed?
1: I, I think that I will refuse on principle to to do this. Um, Miles, it is all yours. Go
0: for it. Well, in that case... Could this be true? Have I expired? From this wounded mortal coil, hast my soul now retired. But this isn't death. Hold one sixty-second minute. Ian, I know an astral tractor beam when I'm in it. This is why we can't have nice things. And Lockheed is pipped into a massive science fiction spaceship interior, surrounded by a bunch of fantastically accessorized, but still mostly naked, purple dragons of all shapes and sizes. This is the flock. This is Lockheed's alien, well, not alien to him, race.
1: And they seem to have no problem with the fact that he's disembodied.
0: In fact, they've deliberately pulled his soul out of his body to put him on trial. They're a very community-minded species, so the penalty for abandoning their collective, which Lockheed did back in Uncanny X-Men 160-whatever, is death.
1: He also, I believe, stood up his fiancé.
0: He did. When he left, he was engaged to be married, so that's unfortunate. Now, he has the right, in flock law, to defend himself, either with science or art, and he chooses to paint his defense, which, for a comic book, I feel pretty good about. It kind of reminds me of the whole sword of might versus amulet of right choice that Captain Britain made, but a whole lot sillier, and also potentially more charming. And also, I have to say, A Little Purple Dragon with a paintbrush reminds me so much of Figment from Disney's Imagination ride out in Epcot. I haven't seen that thing since the early 90s. I'm actually going to Disney for the first time in, like, a million years in a few weeks, so I hope that ride is still good and my childhood hasn't been destroyed. Disney World, please don't destroy my childhood, although I suspect you probably did.
1: I vaguely remember hearing that they got rid of that, but I have been deliberately avoiding Disney for, like, the last 15 years, so...
0: Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed. But, yeah, Lockheed explains the reason he left. With a thought stroke of my soul brush, let me dispel all rumor. My motivation for leaving lies within Excalibur. That's not a rhyme. That's really not a rhyme. I'm with you on this one. They're heroic heroes in a land called Great Britain. And I confess with the youngest, I was instantly smitten. But if the rationale as to why is not immediately clear... Listen particularly close with your heart and your ear.
1: This makes me wonder, although I suspect it's not intended as such, whether hearts are actually hearing organs for Lockheed's species, because he is apparently anatomically somewhat peculiar. The surgeon who's operating on him has mentioned that she's
0: found, like, five lungs so far. Maybe he's got redundant organs, kind of like the Krogan, or Klingons, or other mean alien races that start with K.
1: Well, no, not redundant. Maybe his organs have other weird additional sensory powers. Maybe lockheed types can actually listen with their hearts that would be cool
0: it's all thanks to the power in this comic of imagination i'm not going to sing the whole song but listeners you've heard it maybe some of you have heard it i haven't and lockheed oh uh it's totally an earworm maybe that's for the best
1: yeah i think i might have to retain my blissful ignorance on this one i i am i am not a big theme park kid
0: fair enough Well, Lockheed gives summaries of the origins of each character, and one of the things I really enjoyed here, talking up the art a little more, is that Hoover does such a great job of mimicking Cockrum and Byrne and Smith and Davis for each era of these flashbacks. He's, like, got Paul Smith's angular features down when he draws Kitty from that era, Alan Davis's swoopy hair, as much as anyone who's not Alan Davis can have that down. It's so much fun, and probably my favorite part of the entire issue. Interestingly enough, Lockheed also specifically focuses on Widget having teleported this kid named Colin away way back at the very beginning of the series. It was a throwaway little scene just to show that Widget can teleport people, but Colin is going to be a big deal soon. Alan Davis did ask Scott Lobdell to prepare for Alan Davis's run, so maybe this little mention is in fact setting up the appearance of Kylan, one of my favorite completely forgotten characters. Way to spoil something massive, dude. I'm just saying, these comics came out a long time ago. Valid. Well, back on Earth, back in not doggerel land, Captain Britain goes to find Phoenix. As an old guy on a stretcher says that he's a heart patient and maybe that lady should dress more appropriately, womp, womp, whatever.
1: You know what? You know what? Fuck you, old hospital man. You are terrible. You are what is wrong with the world. If you are incapable of controlling yourself or maintaining any modicum of calm... When a woman is going around in a superhero costume or like whatever the hell, that's your problem. I don't care. if And, and if, if this is that much of an if this is a medical issue for you, maybe the hospital should have given you a goddamn blindfold.
0: Seriously, old dude. I'm not saying I hope you have a heart attack, but I kind of hope you have a heart attack.
1: No, <laughs> no, joke. no, no. We don't ho- hope he has a heart attack. We, we hope that he, he finds the error of his ways, but maybe maybe a small heart attack.
0: Just a small heart attack. Just just a heart attack to teach him a lesson, and then I hope he's fine.
1: <laughs> a minor punitive heart attack.
0: A minor punitive heart attack. Is that our episode title? I'm, anyway, I'm not sure.
1: I, I have no idea anymore.
0: So Captain Britain does, in fact, find Phoenix, the source of these potential punitive heart attacks, on the roof, where she's thinking about that time that Wolverine stabbed her to prevent her from killing Celine, because she's thinking a lot about getting vengeance on Doom for what he did to Lockheed.
1: Aw, she's such a Summers. When things are bad, she goes outside to
0: brood alone. She totally does. It's pretty great. Um, But now she talks to Captain Britain about this and says that's really not her style anymore. She's seen what people thinking that they're above the law does to people. She's seen, like, the horrible future that she grew up in and so many supervillains that did exactly that.
1: Meanwhile in space, Lockheed
0: continues his plea... As I was explaining before I ran out of paper, on day 35 of the Endless Cross Time Caper, we were surrounded yet again by alternative Nazis. Hmm? How about that? They've decided to catch some Zs.
1: Catch some Zs because the other dragons have all fallen asleep, lulled into unconsciousness, or possibly chased out of consciousness by Lockheed's terrible verse and his summary of early Excalibur comics.
0: Well, no, what's going on here is that it's specifically him telling this endless story about the cross-time caper that's put them to sleep, which is really wonderful sort of self-aware sardonic commentary that made me literally laugh out loud when I read it.
1: The other dragons think that he is trying to sabotage him, that if, you know, if they all fall asleep, then the ship will drift and their souls might get too far away from their bodies and disappear.
0: Right, this would actually be a great way for Lockheed to escape. He could jump back to his body, and his entire alien race would die in space. But no, he jumps to the controls, uh, since he's the only one who's not groggy, and saves them all.
1: He's able to use the controls despite being disembodied.
0: Uh, It's like an astral spaceship, sort of. Eh, You know, Uh, space stuff. Space dragons, man. While those space dragons do still find Lockheed guilty, they at least replace his death sentence with exile, because after all, he saved their lives, and he's cool with that. He wants to go back to Earth. And in fact, he does. He goes right back into his body.
1: Now, on the roof of the hospital, Captain Britton and Phoenix are continuing their conversation, but they are disrupted by a landing helicopter. And this is a mysterious helicopter. In fact, everyone in it is shielded from Phoenix's psychic probes. so it's not until it lands that they find out
0: Who's, who's just arrived. It's Marvel Girl, Storm, Colossus, Psylocke, Rogue, and Wolverine. So that's a thing. Excalibur has thought that the X-Men were dead last we checked. But before we get to where that goes, I'd like to point out, so the rhyming thing, the flock, the defending yourself with art, all of that, that never comes back in continuity. Lockheed does get more of a personality. I don't think this is ever mentioned again. For me, even if it was just a dream, I treasure this issue, I love it in my heart, and Jay, I'm going to have to love it extra just to make up for how much you hate it.
1: I hope this entire issue has a small punitive heart attack. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we just have one more to go, Excalibur number 41, which has a wonderful cover that's actually an homage to the Sword is Drawn special with Excalibur fighting warwolves, the very first Excalibur story, but it's Excalibur fighting the X-Men. Which
1: is a bit of a giveaway of where this issue is going to head. So our heroes, most of Excalibur and most of the X-Men, are holed up in Neil's pub for their awkward reunion. While Inspector Di Thomas, the grumpiest man at Scotland Yard, has cordoned off the streets to prepare for the worst with the help of
0: Alistair Stewart. And so everyone's having a big grand reunion, but not everybody's happy. Kitty Pride is furious at the X-Men for letting her think that they were dead for so long, which, I gotta say, that is totally reasonable. I would be super pissed as well. Like, okay, apparently we found out here, awkwardly, that Excalibur did know the X-Men were alive. They they heard about it on the news, off-panel, and just never mentioned it. But regardless, Kitty is seeing, like, her almost mother figure, Storm, for the first time in ages. She thought she was dead. She mourned her thoroughly. And it turned out Storm was just fucking with her. Kitty. ...storms off and storm, uh, storms, I guess, after her, to sort of try to make up with her to try to apologize back at the hospital where Kitty's watching over Lockheed.
1: Meanwhile, in a prison medical transport van, a man named Phineas Umbridge, whom we have never seen before and whom we will never see again, ...uses a big green magical gem to suck out the souls of several of his fellow prisoners... And uh, Phineas Umbridge's plan is to wait until the van gets them to the hospital emergency room, and then he will release the souls, which will occupy new vessels, and also somehow gain superpowers. This is the gem that he he purchased from his, his prison cellmate— and he's going to use this to take over the world, but his plan is completely thwarted when he manages to drop the gem out of the back bars of the transport vehicle and it breaks open and the souls of his, his fellow prisoners, all the folks he killed, um, possess some furniture and appliances instead.
0: I love everything about what you just said. There's this great, big, elaborate setup. Clearly, this guy with a wonderful name has been planning this for, like, months, if not years. All of his fellow prisoners know what's going on. They've rehearsed it to a T. It fucks up for, like, a dumb, unpredictable reason. Everything goes horribly wrong, and now they're possessing furniture because this is an caliber comic, and this is one of the most Excalibur things that's happened in ages. This would be
1: funnier and more effective if it weren't essentially Inferno Ultralight.
0: It definitely does remind me of Inferno as well. Like, the possessed appliances look very possessed inanimate objects from Inferno, specifically Brett Blevins' version of Inferno.
1: Now, our heroes all head out for a mighty team-up to, to fight the possessed furniture, but all is not quite as it seems. Um, In the background, very quietly, Rogue and Wolverine debate when they should kill Excalibur.
0: That's no good. On the pub roof, Phoenix and Colossus are sitting out the fight while catching up until Di Thomas shows up and just shoots Colossus
1: that's because Colossus is a fucking warwolf all of the X-Men are warwolves and I gotta say I love how committed they are to the bit like Warwolf Storm follows Kitty and has a long heart-to-heart conversation with her and like Warwolf Colossus was just hanging out and catching up with Phoenix and they're just <laughs> there's no reason for them to do this they just sort of do it
0: Okay, this reminds me so much. So I was recently on uh, Max and Tina Carlton's uh, Once Upon a Time podcast. Welcome to Storybrooke. I'd never seen Once Upon a Time before, so this was an entertaining experience, and I actually recommend that people listen to the episode. We had a lot of fun with it. But at one point, you find out that like the fiance of the main character who's lost her memory, who's like been hanging out with her for a year and proposes marriage to her and wants to spend his life with her, he's actually like a flying monkey in disguise. Which begs the question— Wait, what? Yeah, so that begs the question, if she hadn't found out, which of course she does, but if she hadn't, would this flying monkey have just, like, married her? And would they have lived out their lives together with him staying undercover the entire time? That is, like, real dedication right there as, as a deep cover agent.
1: Anyway— Fortunately for Excalibur, <laughs> Di Thomas is somewhat quicker on the uptake. But we should, we should talk briefly before we, we talk about this. We should talk about what the warwolves do because their MO is how Di was able to work out that that's what's going on here. The warwolves are operatives from the Mojoverse. They were sent to capture Phoenix and drag her back to capture Rachel back after she had, she had willingly gone with Spiral and been in the Mojoverse for a while. And their deal is that they eat people and they occupy their skins and they can go around and pose effectively as those people. And Di was able to work out that this was going on because he went through some missing prison files and discovered that pretty much every single one of them was a dead ringer for one of the X Men.
0: So that's actually really clever on Di Thomas's part. Uh, well done, Mister Thomas.
1: He's he's good at his job. Now on the street, the X types versus furniture brawl continues. Until Nightcrawler rescues the most conveniently placed girl of all time, who who delivers what may be the most forced piece of dialogue I have ever read in a comic book, which is saying something because I've read a lot of Silver Age comics. I do have a theory. That crystal over there, it fell out of a passing paddy wagon. It sounds crazy, but maybe it contains some life forces that were released and animated
0: the furniture. She should go work with Di Thomas. They could figure anything out. Yeah, this is
1: this is ludicrous. Like the entire the entire side plot is ludicrous, and it feels shoehorned into the point that I I'm 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 wondering. I, I'd love to know more about the order in which things were written and added to this issue because the whole the whole possessed souls thing is is just a. Little bit too convenient.
0: Oh man, see for me that's what makes it fun. It's just madcap carnage in a true Excalibur fashion. And also But lowercase C carnage. Uh, right. You know, not not the other guy. So Nightcrawler does manage to contain the souls, because of course this convenient plot lady is totally right by putting the gem.
1: He manages to contain the souls just by Clapping the two halves of the gem back together, because it's like one of those little Polly Pocket habitats from when Polly Pocket was still cool and a choking hazard.
0: (laughs) Polly Pocket was both always cool and always a choking hazard.
1: No, they sized them up. Like, they're big dolls now, and it's so stupid because, I mean, okay, it's probably probably children are less likely to choke on them, which is probably good. But they were fucking awesome before. Like, you could have an entire house and room in something that was about the size of your hand, and it was super fucking cool.
0: Oh, man. It's like the bottle city of Candor, but, uh...
1: They were perfect for playing spaceships because they had these enclosed environments.
0: <laughs> Jay, that is one of the most Jay things you've ever said.
1: Look... If you can't play spaceships with it, there's no point.
0: I can't fully disagree with that. But, yeah, Nightcrawler's uh, plan is completely successful. The rest of the werewolves, meantime, head up to back up fake Colossus, and they merge into one big multi-headed werewolf, pinning Phoenix down and opening a portal to the Mojoverse. They're going to bring her back to Mojo, their original mission from the very first Excalibur story
1: but it's okay because Kitty is able to phase up from below and grab Rachel and drag her out of danger, and Kurt stops the werewolves by releasing the souls of the prisoners again to possess them because there's really nothing that could possibly go wrong with letting the souls of a bunch of condemned felons out to possess really powerful, super-villainous, extra-dimensional monsters that are also sentient. That has to end well. This, there's nothing that could con- go askew with this.
0: Well, we do know that it's not super easy to get back and forth between Earth and the Mojoverse, so at least they're out of the way for the time being— they get sucked back to the Mojoverse, and the portal closes. The heroes have won, and have some stories to tell the grandkids, like, more.
1: Alistair and Di do some cleanup work. They, they after this, they go and investigate the Warwolves' headquarters. And this isn't a super narratively pertinent detail, but it's one that I love, which is that the Warwolves made all of their costumes by hand. They found X-Men lookalikes, but once they found the people with, you know, the right face and body types they still had to make the costumes and so they're just they're just they're just a really
0: dedicated cosplayers do you think the Hellfire Club helps them out the inner circle? Oh I bet they would Oh wait no or alternately they got on whatever the 1991 equivalent of YouTube was and looked at a bunch of costuming tutorials by Apocalypse because you know Apocalypse has his own channel and he's so excited to tell you about all the things he's figured out for his company that he prefers to think of as a family.
1: Oh my God
0: 100% accurate.
1: There was no YouTube in 1991.
0: I'm sorry. You know, I'm sure there was some kind of equivalent.
1: There really wasn't, though. (laughs) Back at the Lighthouse, Excalibur grudgingly decides that they should probably call the X-Men. And what this implies is that they actually knew that the X-Men were alive and have just been in denial every time in the last few issues that they've insisted that the X-Men are all dead.
0: I mean, the impression I get is that they were all like Kitty was. They were all really upset and offended that the X-Men didn't let them know that they were alive, that they had to find out from, like, the news reporting of the extinction agenda. It's not clear, but I think that's what happened.
1: So they decided to just pretend the X-Men were dead? Even among themselves?
0: Uh, they decided to just not mention it on panel, apparently. That's the problem with fill-in eras. The continuity's not so tight all the time.
1: Alright, so, Kurt, meanwhile decides that, that it is time to get over the grudge and, and be the first to reach out and give the X-Men a call. The The other team members are a little bit concerned, specifically that the X-Men, now that they're back, will want Kitty and Kurt to return to America and rejoin them. To which Kurt
0: responds, We tell them what's in our hearts. We tell them we're all members of the same extended family. We tell them that Excalibur is as important to the world as the X-Men, New Mutants, and X-Factor. That Professor Xavier's dream of a world where humans and mutants living together needs to be kept alive in Europe as badly as it's needed in America.
1: That's cool, but they've been kind of insular up to this point. They, they've they been in a lot of other Englands, but they haven't really been on mainland Europe at all, have they? I mean, they have a
0: fair bit. I'd say for, for at least half their stories after the Crosstime Caper, but I like this. This is sort of a new mission statement for the book. It's a much more X-centric mission statement for the book. That part I have mixed feelings about because it was kind of cool to have Excalibur off to the side, but at the same time, I did always want it to overlap more with the other books I was reading. So knowing that that will be the case going forward, that after freaking 41 issues, these characters finally know that everybody is alive, there's a certain catharsis, a certain satisfaction to that.
1: So they make the call, and it is answered by the man who is currently operating the X switchboard, and that man is Cable. He is sitting at a table and he is flanked by monitors, each of which is decorated with a picture of a new team that's going to come out of the upcoming reboots. And that is the end of that.
0: And that's Excalibur right before Alan Davis comes back and right before basically the entire X-universe relaunches.
1: And as we sit poised on this narrative
0: cusp, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Hey, writing a fanfic and I thought I would ask the experts this question. If back during the pre-schism utopia days, Scott and Emma had gotten married, who would have been the bridesmaids and the groomsmen? Well,
1: Anonymous, because I am the person I am and I follow the things I follow, I know for a fact that this is this is a question you've been going around and asking a lot of people, or at least several other people, and my answer is going to differ some from theirs. I'm going to say I think the answer is nobody because I feel, I am inclined to think that at least during the utopia era, Scott and Emma would probably have quietly
0: eloped. Okay, okay. I, I think I buy that.
1: Yeah, they are they are fairly private, even when they're extravagant and ridiculous in their relationship. They're not super showy about it at that point in time. And yeah, I mean, and then based on precedent and based on who they're on speaking terms with, I'm going to go ahead and say, I guess, um, probably Havoc and Beast as witnesses. But I'm really just kind of pulling that out of thin air. So take it or leave it.
0: It's probably for the best that Havoc wasn't the best man cuz you know he'd get up there and he'd start talking about his brother and then he'd just go into that stupid M day speech at the first possible excuse. That was
1: significantly later. Everyone was still on pretty good. This is this is pre-schism utopia.
0: <laughs> well, even so.
1: I guess it could have been Havoc and, and Wolverine in, in Mexico. <laughs> in a nuclear power plant.
0: This wedding got weird
1: or awesome. Anyway, a second anonymous listener asks, also on Tumblr...
0: Or maybe the first. Maybe the first just asked a second question. We don't know.
1: We have no idea who you are. You are anonymous. All we know is that you are here, and you are beautiful, and we love you all equally. Anyway, this anonymous listener asks, Whatever happened to Jen Ascani, anyway? Did she get retconned out after future Rachel got the credit for everything that happened with baby Nathan? Has she ever been mentioned in in later iterations of Cable's backstory?
0: Okay, so I know I'm setting myself up for an um actually here because I probably missed something, but from everything I can tell, from all of my memory and all of my research, she died. She died and she stayed dead, but she has been mentioned a number of times uh, in flashbacks in Cable's own series, and Messiah Complex, and Manifest Destiny, even in an issue of the Gambit and Bishop series Children of the Atom. She's never been removed from continuity. Even after, like you alluded to, it was revealed that Rachel Summers ran the Ascani Sisterhood in Cable's future. In fact, the Sister Ascani that we know got a little more detail posthumously after that revelation. Once the organization gains the name the Ascani Sisterhood, our Ascani was named Sister Ascani, or Jen Ascani, instead of just being Ascani.
1: She did, however, definitely die for real at the end of the endgame story in X Factor. So she, even with all of those changes, she really just has just existed from that point on in slightly confusing memory.
0: Now, this podcast is entirely listener-supported, and supporting us at certain levels comes with acknowledgement on air from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. And so we are going right back to everybody's favorite angry Claremontian narrator...
1: You've spent so long nursing your resentment, Tori Stunmark, when it would have been so simple just to pick up a phone. But no, not you. You had to go and declare Chris Buholtz legally dead just to save on the long-distance bills. Nice going there, buddy. And, uh, I believe the mic now goes to the one and only Dr. Doom.
2: How easy it is to prey on the foolish trust of the innocent, Steve Jones gave up the Soul Sword so easily, and all because DOOM had once prevented him from disintegrating. And the demonic Sabrina H. gave up her hell dimension with but an authoritative and stentorian suggestion from the venerable voice of DOOM. Now, with all the power that has DOOM's to command, that fool Richard shall suffer."
1: Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter.
0: New episodes of our show come on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, and more.
0: This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: Next week, we'll see Apocalypse Ascendant and the best jackets that might have been...
0: In X Factor Forever. <music>